On the night of the biggest break-in of an FBI office ever, no one heard or saw a thing. What had everyone's attention for days before, during, and after the raid, which kept the crime from making headlines until much later? Find out on this episode of Top Fold. Welcome to Top Fold, a podcast about all the news that would have been. I'm your host, Luke Hefley. Here at Top Fold, we explore monumental events that didn't make the top story only because that spot was already taken. When you hear of a government office break-in, what comes to mind? Most likely Watergate, the infamous break-in of the Democratic National Headquarters in Washington, D.C. But what if I told you there was another break-in well over a year earlier of an FBI office that would forever change our perception of the secretive government agency? The greatest U.S. government office break-in that you have never heard of happened in a town that you also have probably never heard of, Media, Pennsylvania. Less than 20 miles west of Philadelphia, a small group of anti-war protesters broke into the FBI field office and stole every single file. Not only that, unlike the Watergate break-in, these burglars were never caught. Calling themselves the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI, they were convinced that the FBI was spying on them, members of the anti-war movement, minorities, and numerous other groups. What they found shocked not only them, but the entire country. The stolen files were sent to the Washington Post, the New York Times, the L.A. Times, and two congressmen. The attorney general at the time, John Mitchell, asked the newspapers not to publish the files as they posed a threat to national security. Everyone, except the Washington Post, immediately sent the files back to the FBI. Reporter Betsy Metzger, with full support of the Washington Post publisher, Catherine Graham, boldly published a front-page story two weeks later. So who did it and how? The FBI didn't know and wouldn't know until 43 years later. In 2014, Metzger wrote a book about the event titled The Burglary, The Discovery of J. Edgar Hoover's Secret FBI, where she describes that after four decades, the group approached her and wanted their story told. Later, film director Johanna Hamilton made a great documentary about the break-in titled 1971. William Davidin had recruited and informally led the break-in. Davidin chose John and Bonnie Raines, Keith Forsyth, Judy Feingold, Robert Williamson, and two others who used pseudonyms in Metzger's book. Forsyth was a friend of John Raines, and his job was to pick the lock of the office door. The thing was, he didn't know how, so he took a correspondence course on locksmithing and practiced for weeks. Bonnie's job was to case the office, so she impersonated a college student researching opportunities for women in the FBI. When leaving, she pretended to be lost and was able to gain valuable information, including the floor plan, file locations, and that there were no alarm system or security guards. On the evening of the break-in, the group met at a hotel not far from the office and waited on Forsyth to let them know when he was in. There was just one problem. The lock was a cylinder tumbler instead of a pen tumbler, and Forsyth had not learned how to pick that type of lock. After what seemed like forever, he gave up and returned to the hotel. Bonnie remembered there was a second door on the side that opened through the apartment hallway. There was a large file cabinet in front of it. It wasn't ideal, but it might work. After easily picking the lock, Forsyth discovered there was a deadbolt 
at the very top of the door. Using a crowbar, he made a terrible racket breaking into the office. To his surprise, no one came to investigate, which was good because it took a while for the group to collect all the files. Remember, they stole every one of them. They weren't caught entering or leaving the FBI office or during the lengthy time that they were actually in the building. How were they able to do all this unseen? How could no one, not the security guard across the street at the courthouse, not the people living upstairs or down the street, not even the FBI field officer who lived in the apartment directly below the office, not hear or see anything? Because on that evening, March 8, 1971, everyone's attention was on what would be known as the fight of the century, the epic boxing match between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. This battle transcended boxing and the sporting world. It just wasn't two great athletes in the prime of their lives. It was about so much more. Ali, the young brash loudmouth who could back up his bluster, and Joe Frazier, the reigning WBA and WBC champion. This was the first time that two undefeated boxing champions were squaring off in the ring. In June of 1967, Ali, the undisputed heavyweight champion at the time, refused induction into the armed forces. Convicted of draft evasion, he was sentenced to five years in prison and fined $10,000. He was also denied a boxing license in every state, stripped of his passport, and, of course, his heavyweight championship belts. Remaining free on appeal, he wouldn't box from age 25 to 29, which many say are the best years of a boxer's career. While not allowed to box, Ali kept talking and traveled the country speaking at college campuses advocating for racial justice, promoting his religion, and speaking in opposition of the Vietnam War. Finally, after winning a federal court case over three and a half years after his conviction, New York allowed Ali to box at Madison Square Garden, and the fight of the century was on. For days leading up to the fight, stories about each boxer plastered the pages of the sports section and the front pages as well. Multiple variety shows had commentators, other boxers, and even Ali and Frazier themselves promoting the fight. Just like the divide over the war itself, the country was split over who they favored. Ali representing the anti-war movement, racial justice, and Islam, and Frazier, who was a friend of President Nixon, the working class, middle America, and law and order. Coincidentally, Ali's training camp was just 60 miles away from Media, Pennsylvania, at a farm close to Reading bringing even more attention from all over the state to the upcoming fight. Ali, with 31 wins, 25 of them knockouts, was undefeated and ready to win back the WBA and WBC championship belts that he hadn't lost in the ring. Both boxers had won gold medals from the Olympics. Ali in 1960 and Frazier in 64. Frazier's record of 26-0 with 23 knockouts made this truly a battle of champions. Rarely does the world get to see two of the greatest athletes ever, both undefeated, in their prime, and with so much at stake, in and out of the ring. Teddy Brenner, the boxing matchmaker for Madison Square Garden, said the crowd was split between people who thought Ali was a victim of a terrible injustice and the people who wanted him to get his block knocked off. Still to this day, many argue who was greater. Everyone was there that evening. Not only were there over 750 press passes handed out, 
but hundreds of Hollywood stars, including Barbara Streisand, Sammy Davis Jr., Dustin Hoffman, Diana Ross, and Woody Allen, just to name a few, were at ringside. Burt Lancaster was the color commentator for the pay-per-view, which he had never done before. Ringside tickets were so difficult to get that the mayor of New York City, John Lindsay, multiple senators, including Ted Kennedy, and a former vice president had to sit in the balcony. Frank Sinatra couldn't even get a ringside ticket, so he partnered with Life magazine to photograph the match. Multiple sports all-stars, including former boxing champions, and Apollo 14 astronauts who had landed on the moon just a month earlier were there. Over 50 countries had purchased the rights to broadcast the match, and 300 million people worldwide watched the event. Back at the FBI office while trying to pick the lock, Forsyth could hear the radio blaring from the FBI agent's apartment below. Contrary to popular belief, the match wasn't on television in the United States. Although other countries were allowed to purchase the viewing rights, to maximize profits, the promoters made it available to only 300 closed-circuit pay-per-view venues around the country, forcing millions to listen closely on the radio. Several TV stations gave a summary of each round. Knowing the match could be over at any moment, people hung on the announcer's every word. This gave the group back at the FBI field office plenty of time and a good distraction to accomplish their mission. The boxing match exceeded all expectations. Back and forth for the early rounds, with Ali taking the punches and pounding Frazier as he had never been pounded before. The fight went the distance, 15 rounds, and with the world listening, it was announced that Joe Frazier had won by unanimous decision and retained the world heavyweight belts. The next day, this historical break-in wasn't on the front pages of the newspapers across the country. Or the day after that. For weeks, the world debated if Ali had been robbed of the title or had Frazier finally put Ali in his place. All the while, since there was such little news about the break-in, valuable leads, if there ever were any, vanished. But more shocking than Ali losing for the first time was the information in the stolen FBI files. The FBI had wanted to enhance the paranoia and make people think there was, quote, an FBI agent behind every mailbox. The Bureau spied on churches, the African-American community, college classrooms, stores, and hundreds of thousands of individuals. Every FBI agent was supposed to have information to report to their supervisor at least every two weeks. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover assigned over 200 agents to try to find the perpetrators who had raided the FBI office. He knew what was in those files. For the first time, there was hard evidence that Hoover was doing something wrong on a massive scale. It is almost indescribable how powerful J. Edgar Hoover was. Since Calvin Coolidge in 1924, he had served as FBI director under eight presidents. Or should I say, over them. For almost 50 years, his power knew no bounds, and many believed he had something on everyone, including the commanders-in-chief, making his job secure as long as he lived. In one of the infamous Nixon tapes, President Nixon said one of the reasons that he had kept Hoover as the FBI director was his fear of Hoover's possible retaliation against him. His power was so strong that Nixon's predecessor, Lyndon Johnson, waived the then-mandatory government retirement age of 70, allowing Hoover to be director for life. By far, the most damning thing that came from the break-in was found in capital letters on a mailing slip spelling out COINTELPRO, which stood for Counterintelligence Program. 
It represented FBI's methods of infiltration, burglaries, illegal wiretaps, planning forged documents, spreading false rumors about key individuals, inciting violence, and arranging murders. They even sent a letter trying to blackmail Martin Luther King Jr., telling him he had days to commit suicide or sensitive information would be released. In 1975, Idaho Senator Frank Church led a select committee investigating the FBI. The committee concluded that these activities were illegal and unconstitutional. In turn, this brought about the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, creating the FISA court, which requires the government to have a warrant approved by a judge to spy on Americans. In 1976, just three days after the statute of limitations expired, the FBI quickly closed the file on the break-in, embarrassed that they, of all people, couldn't find the culprits. Three months after the fight of the century, the Supreme Court unanimously overturned Ali's conviction, giving him what many say was his greatest victory, although it was outside the ring. Ali and Frazier would go on to fight two more times. Ali won them both, one by unanimous decision and the other by technical knockout when Frazier's team threw in the towel and wouldn't let the boxer come out for the 15th and final round. By the way, Multiple names of VIPs who were at the fight were mentioned earlier, but you can add another. J. Edgar Hoover was also there. The group, knowing so many would be distracted by such a monumental event playing out all over the country, had chosen this evening on purpose. It's crazy to imagine that a small band of troublemakers were able to take down the FBI because the world's attention was on a boxing match in New York City. For one night, March 8, 1971, three men, Joe Frazier, Muhammad Ali, and J. Edgar Hoover, all truly met their match. And there you have it, all the news that would have been. Thank you for joining us this week on Top Fold. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Top Fold Podcast. And subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcast. All my sources and research can be found at topfold.buzzsprout.com. There, along with other things that bring history to life. I'd like to thank David Wagler for the music. And if you like the show, please rate us and give us a review. Or simply tell a friend. That would be great. So until next time, there you have it. All the news that would have been. <laughs>